please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that we come this morning to be reminded of your faithfulness to us and to your purposes. Thank you that we come for hope, and that is a hope that does not disappoint, for joy and joy that is bound up in the truth of things and how the world will one day be. Pray that you would lead us this morning to hope rightly and to rejoice fully in the coming of our King. We pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. We are going to be continuing our time in the book of Isaiah this morning, if you want to follow along in your bulletin. I'm starting in chapter 35. There are reading. Um, but before we jump into Isaiah, I want to take a moment to look at the gospel lesson, uh, because I think it's connected pretty deeply to the passage from Isaiah that we'll spend most of our time in. The gospel lesson from Matthew begins with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is sending messengers to Jesus with a specific question. He wants to know if Jesus is really the Messiah. He wants to know if Jesus is really the one they've been expecting or if they should wait for someone else. It's kind of an understandable question, I think. It's a question that a lot of us bring to the table from time to time. Jesus, are you really who you say you are? Could you really be the Messiah who was to come? It seems like a reasonable question for John to ask unless you know who John the Baptist is. Because if you know the history of John the Baptist, it becomes very apparent that this question is out of place. Think about it. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, when they were both in the womb, when Mary went to visit Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and John, in utero, heard Mary's voice, he leaped with joy. He recognized the mother of the Messiah before he was even born. And if that wasn't enough, when Jesus came to be baptized by John, John recognized him immediately. We know because he tells his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says it to him twice. So he seemed fairly certain as to who this Jesus was. And if that wasn't enough, when Jesus actually got into the Jordan to be baptized by John, the Gospels tell us that the heavens opened and the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove and a voice echoed from heaven saying, Behold my beloved Son. Seems like John would know who Jesus is. He's the person, if anyone, would know who should know. But this morning, John is asking a question of Jesus. He's asking, are you really who I thought you were, Jesus? Are you really the Messiah? And that begs the question of us, doesn't it? What's changed for John? Why is it that John can go from being completely confident that Jesus is the Messiah to questioning Jesus' identity? What's changed? Well, if you know the story, you know what's changed. John was arrested in the meantime. John sends his messengers from prison, facing what is likely to be his execution. It will be his execution. He may or may not know it yet. John had been arrested by an adulterous, idolatrous, oppressive king, was likely to be executed for speaking out against that king, and the great Messiah, the great king who was to come and set things right, to bring justice on the oppressed and bring life 
or justice on the oppressor and bring life to the oppressed. This Messiah did not seem to be having any effect on John's life. You see the problem. Jesus seemed a far cry from the king that John expected. I mean, even the religious leaders were turning against this Jesus. And so John sends messengers to his cousin to ask, are you really the one? This doesn't seem like the life that I thought we were promised. This looks more like imminent death. For me and Jesus, probably imminent death for you at this point. We were expecting the restored land of Israel, and instead, it seems like we're still in the desert. We're still in the wilderness. So can you really be who we thought you were? And I think that's a question that each of us knows fairly well too, isn't it? Many of us, when we signed up for this Christian thing, we thought that it would make life better for us. We thought that if we followed God, it would smooth things over with our families. We thought maybe it would stabilize our income. Maybe it would take away that anxiety that's chased us all our lives. When we began to follow Jesus, we thought it would generally just make life easier. But for many of us, I'd say all of us who've been following Jesus for more than a week, we found ourselves in the wilderness again. We found ourselves feeling far from God and far, far from the fulfillment of his purposes. At least I have. We found ourselves in what feels like the desert and confused as to how we got here. And the question has come up in our own hearts. Where is this abundant life that you promised, Jesus? Where is the fulfillment of your promises? Are you really who we thought you were? Let's turn to our lesson in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 1. We begin our lesson in Isaiah with the people of Israel, the people of God, and they find themselves in the wilderness in a dry lands in the desert. Now remember, last week we set the stage for Isaiah. Isaiah is a cyclical book. It repeats itself. It tells the same story again and again as the different waves crashing on the beach, all following the same pattern, but each one slightly different. And the story, the pattern, we described was fairly obvious. There's judgment for God's people. They've rebelled against him. They've begun worshiping the gods of the other nations. They've begun oppressing the people of God within their boundaries. So God's judgment would fall on Israel, Isaiah declares, and that judgment would look like the nations conquering them, the nations breaking down the throne of King David, the temple destroyed, the walls of Jerusalem broken apart. This judgment of God would result in desolation, and the people of God carried away into exile, and the land of God left dry, desolate and underdeveloped. The only people left behind would have been the poor and the lame, the ones who didn't pose any threat to the new conquering government. Everybody else carried off to the horizon. Israel left in total desolation, and that's what verse 1 begins with. It's describing the people of God under judgment unto desolation. Remember last week we had the image of a stump cut in a field. No sense of life left. This week, the image is of an arid wilderness, of a dry land, of a desert. 
I read uh, The Grapes of Wrath recently by Steinbeck. And if you know the book, it takes place in the Dust Bowl uh, in the Great Depression, Oklahoma, as folks are moving, having to sell or give up their property, the family lands, and moving west. And it's because of this great drought that's rolled in by um, unjust banking systems present over them. And he describes the dryness of the land as everyone travels west like this. He says, Every moving thing lifted dust into the air. A walking man lifted a thin layer as high as his waist. A wagon lifted the dust as high as the fence tops. And an automobile boiled a cloud of dust behind it. This land that should have been green with corn and with wheat, that should have been green with vegetable patches, is instead gray and ashen, covered in dust, inescapable dryness, and everyone's leaving because there's no home for them there anymore. There's no life left in Oklahoma. And this is how Isaiah describes Israel after the judgment of God. It's a place inhospitable, joyless and empty. It's desolate and dry. The exiles are long gone. There is no life for them there. And all the while, the nations around them are doing just fine. The nations that had conquered Israel are thriving. The nations that helped the conquering nations on their way, they're thriving too. It's God's people and God's land that are in desolation, seemingly in desolation alone. That's how this chapter of Isaiah begins. But just like last week, our reading picks up right at the moment that the wave breaks, right at the moment that judgment unto desolation turns to hope. Because here in the wilderness, Isaiah declares, springs forth joy. Joy in the wilderness. Look at verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Joy. That's not exactly what the dry wilderness communicates, is it? Something's changed. Gladness and singing, rejoicing in new life, the wave has broken and into the wilderness is flowing joy. Flowers like the crocus, that first flower of spring that pops up, is blooming now. The sound of birds is carried in the air. There are trees now like the forests of Lebanon in Israel. There are vegetation like the mountains of Carmel and Sharon. These are regions that thrived while God's people were in desolation, but now the truth is laid bare, and those places far from God are shown to be dry and empty, and Israel is restored to life again. Their glory is brought now to Israel. God's land is restored. Now, who could do this work? Who could do something like that? Who could take the wilderness and fill it with joy? You might think, if you were with us last week, that it would be the work of the king, the king who comes. Remember last week, he comes to bring peace, a peace so great that even creation finds itself at peace with one another. Well, this week, there is something other than a king who comes. Someone even more surprising, because the mighty work is done now by God himself. Look at verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your king, no, behold 
your God will come. Your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. The king who came last week, now it is God himself who comes. And here Isaiah is saying, he says, take heart, you dry lands. Take heart, all of you who feel like you're living in desolation because God himself is coming with joy for you. And the coming of God will mean more than just the restoration of the broken, dry land. It will mean the restoration of broken, dried bodies too. Look at verse 5. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute sing for joy. There's that word again, joy. The blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame leaping, the mute singing. This is what the coming of God will be like, Isaiah says. This is what the coming of God will be like. It will be like waters breaking forth in the wilderness, like streams in the desert, like thirsty ground bubbling up with springs of their own. The joy that flows into Israel will be so deep, he writes, that the grasslands that was the haunt of jackals will become marshes. Marshes, marshland, which is a great picture from someone from Charleston. Marshland, you know, that's a good sign. That's home. The land is restored, and is it, if it's restored, that means that all those lost and conquered can now come home. There's life for them there. And so now Isaiah declares there will be a highway in the wilderness leading home, a way of holiness, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy. There it is again. Joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. When the land of God is restored, so will be the people of God, brought back again from every nation, from every place where they have been taken, with singing and with joy, everyone gathered in, everyone coming home. In fact, the only thing not coming into town is sorrow and sighing, which is fleeing away. Isn't that a lovely image? so great will be the joy that sorrow and sighing will find no place. This is the first Christmas for Jesse and I as a married couple, which means that we are feeling that tension that every married couple feels when they have to decide which family to visit for the holidays. You know, there's never enough time for either of your families, is there? Much less enough time for both of them. And even as joyous as it will be to go to Omaha this year, which is where we're going, uh, my, wife's, my wife's home country, um, on Christmas Day, I'll be with you on Christmas Eve. Um, even as joyous as it will be to go to her home, or as joyous as it would be to go to my home, that joy of going home is always a mixed joy, isn't it? There's always, there's always a little bit of sorrow there. The land is different. The land is different than it used to be. The family carries with it some old pains and it brings some new ones. There are those broken relationships that you're expecting and new tensions that tend to bubble up. There's grief for those that should be home and aren't for whatever reason. 
Going home never really feels like coming home, I don't believe. But here we have a true homecoming in Isaiah. A perfect homecoming. All pain, all sorrow is set aside, all injury is healed. The land itself is made whole, made alive, and God's people are restored to one another in joy. Sorrow and sign flee away. Healed land, healed bodies, God's people brought home. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that would be like? Does it seem too good to be true? John the Baptist looks at the chains on his ankles and says, Jesus, this doesn't look like Isaiah. This doesn't look like the promises. This doesn't look like the abundant life. Jesus, what am I missing? Are you really the one who I thought you were? Well, what does Jesus say? How does he respond? Jesus takes John's messengers aside and says, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one not offended by me. What's he saying? Jesus is saying to John, John, this is what the healing of the land looks like, isn't it? John, isn't this what it's supposed to look like when the coming of the Messiah arrives? Isn't this what it looks like when God himself comes to heal his people. It's happening now, John, even while you're in prison. The kingdom is nevertheless here. Even if you don't feel it, John, even if you don't see it, even if you don't understand it, John, this is the king of all walking amongst us. This is the Lord of heaven healing earth. And I think Jesus is speaking the same words to us this morning. Jesus sees the dryness. He sees the brokenness and the grief that we carry. He is no stranger to it. Remember, the Jesus that we first find in a wooden manger is the same Jesus that we will find at the end on the wooden cross. He is no stranger to our desolation. He is no stranger to our wilderness. He knows it well. He knows it well. And yet, he is nevertheless the king. Nevertheless, the Lord who was promised. He does not promise us that our lives will be made easier by his first coming. In fact, he tells his disciples, in no uncertain terms, it may well get worse. Remember his call to them, take up your cross and follow me. That is not a promise of an easy road. And yet, when his disciples find themselves in prison like John the Baptist, when they find themselves literally taking up the cross of Jesus to die for their Lord, the disciples find themselves nevertheless with joy. Christians were known for singing in the Colosseum. Now how can this be so? How can this be? Be so. It is simply because they know what Isaiah declares, what Jesus tells to John. They know that the king has indeed come. 
that God has indeed walked with us. And that means that every miracle, every sign is but a foretaste of what will come. Every healed body is simply a down payment on the promises of God. These are the first of the spring rains. These are the first of the crocus blossoms. And if he has come once, fulfilling his word in part, that means he will come again to fulfill it completely. Healed lands, healed bodies, God's people gathered home again. Water flowing into a weary land. This is our hope. It's good news. Amen.